the ability to listen, I think, being able to listen and not, you know, I think as creatives there can sometimes be a tendency to to think that your opinion is the right one, but I think sometimes stepping back and listening to others' opinions is just as powerful um, to the creative process. Amen. (laughs) Beautiful. The Creative Trust is a podcast about the creative process. Amanda Henderson founded Gloss Creative in 2001 and has been making fabulous happen ever since. Gloss Creative and its alumni have mastered the art of creative renewal. Listen as Amanda sits down to explore some of the world's best creative minds. These are their insights and this is their legacy. Welcome to the Creative Trust. I'm sitting here with Nick Braun from Sibling Architecture. Nick and his team have just won the Grand Prix of the Dulux Colour Awards of 2023. And I'm so excited that Dulux have asked if I would talk with you, Nick. And this is kind of a big one for us because I've never actually done a podcast with someone I don't know before, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's great. I think there are connections that will come up through this all of this morning. But I guess in the first instance, I'm obsessed with how people got creative. So I'd love to hear from you how you became the creative powerhouse you are. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a registered architect and landscape architect, obviously working at Sibling in a team. So it's not just me working in, in the practice, but I guess the, the background that I have, I grew up in southwestern Victoria, the confluence of Guntijmara and Eastern Ma country yeah. in Port Ferry. Um, my dad was an abalone fisherman. My mum was a school teacher. And so I grew up on the beach, like mm. like smack bang, directly on the beach. So I was very connected to landscape from a very early age. Mm. So um, did you go abalone diving? I did a few times, yeah. yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, my so brother was obsessed with that too. Really? Yeah, yeah. in it's, South Australia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, it was nev- never something I wanted to do as a vocation. Um, no, of course. <laughs> but, but it was, yeah. yeah, it was very interesting to go and, yeah, go underwater and see all of that stuff. I think I had a, too much of a fear of sharks to <laughs> ever make it my um, my my profession. Your thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, being, I think, just so connected to the ocean and the beautiful landscapes around there was, I think, part of the spark into creativity as I got older, even though I don't think I knew that at the time as a kid. I think there was certain things and I guess probably if I was to think about kind of games or toys or things that I did as a child that maybe influenced me, I was certainly into to Lego and how that could translate um, into the built environment. But again, not something that was super conscious that I was like, I'm wanting to become an architect. I think I just enjoyed the process of making things and creating spaces, towns, and I guess, yeah, it was maybe urban designing at an, at an early age. It really is interesting the effect that Lego has had on generations yeah. of creatives. It's er- almost every second person. It mentions it. Yeah. Really? I mean, I, yeah, yeah. you know, there was nothing more enjoyable no. for me with the small amount of Lego I had to change the windows around and look in 
you yeah, know, to well, go like, see what was inside the little model-making situation. I think that definitely has an effect on people. Oh, absolutely, and you can create fantasies from it, I guess. It mm, doesn't have to mm, be mm. the regular uh, what you sort of see in your everyday life. It mm. can be a bit more um, out there and exciting. And so, yeah, that was definitely something I did as a kid. But, again, through high school um, geography, so being connected to the landscape was certainly something that came through and so that was my favourite subject at school plus art. And so I went to the careers counsellor at in Geelong where I went to school. Always a terrible moment really, <laughs> yeah, isn't and it? they like, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I like geography and I like art and she suggested landscape architecture and I was like, okay. So I, I, it wasn't something that I was pre, like I'd predetermined. Um, it was something that I was encouraged into and so I applied, uh, got into the course at Melbourne Uni. So I started in landscape architecture initially and um, from there they sort of, the cohort in the first year is connected with architecture and so I did a course where we were doing both and I was like, okay, well, I'm actually into both so ended up doing a double degree. Great. And here we are. Because you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because you yeah. do. yeah. So that took about seven and a half years. It's, um, a, it's such a long time for architects to yeah. come. It's up there, you know, with medicine and all of that. I guess there's a lot to know. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to know and there's a lot that they can't teach you until you're kind of out in the in the real big bad world. But they teach you how to design and so how to become a design thinker. And so I think that's what the main, that's that's what you sort of get out of university and I think being able to be a, a strong designer because you're doing so many different design processes plus technical elements um, like construction, woodwork, whole range of different practices, history. But, yeah, I think the design aspect was the bit for me that that's what it really kind of honed in and taught me how to how to think in a, in a design sense. I remember being um, blown away by doing perspective drawings <laughs> in my sort of first year and just not even having considered what perspective meant in uh, in the world. And so, yeah, there were definitely things that opened my eyes uh, once I got into that uh, university realm. Mm, mm. It's such a great time when you're in your 20s and you're just finding and learning all that new stuff. It's so fabulous, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd go yeah. back in a heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had someone in our studio do a 10-day full-time model-making course in yeah. their holidays from VCA and we were all completely jealous. We yeah. Were like, oh, imagine I that. know, just being we able to do that. Jealous. I know. Yeah. I know. I'm uh, interested to know at uni, yeah. you know, when I think of an architect, there is a lot of cultural stereotyping, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. From an outsider's point of view. I mean, I'm aligned, yeah. you know, with that industry, but yes. not in architecture. Yep. And did this come across at uni? Oh, definitely. Why do people, why do architects take themselves so seriously? Yeah, there is definitely a seriousness yeah. um, in architecture and, yeah, I don't know why it is so pervasive in the in the industry, but that was certainly something I think that uh, myself and my sibling co-founders, we were kind of actively trying to work against that seriousness mm. and I think we saw an opportunity that, maybe things could be a little bit different in the way that you practice. And it's not to say all architects are like that, but there is mm. certainly a, a seriousness. And I I don't know why it is that way, but 
for some reason it's a cultural cultural thing thing within the industry and yeah mm. it, some people love it and some people don't so and is architecture still a so a male dominated industry do you think or is it sort of it, i mean it definitely still is but mm. i think the the figures are improving and there is a lot more representation at a high at a top level of yes. practice with women and um, queer people and yeah, so with everyone. Yeah. So I think that has um, definitely shifted and that mm. kind of male dominance mm. is shifting a bit. But I think it does still unfortunately exist a bit. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I think it's like with everything, it just takes time. Yeah, exactly. I guess. But I do get the feeling that maybe when you establish sibling it was with a different set of rules. What are the rules that you think you broke even in establishing sibling? My co-directors and I, we all met at Melbourne Uni when we were studying there. We shared a studio in Mitchell House in the CBD. And I think just by sharing that studio, we began to share ideas and realised that we all kind of shared a similar design philosophy and there was a real alignment in the way that we thought and we all liked the idea of, I guess, not being um, kind of part of that cookie cutter architectural approach or, yeah, some, some of those things that you were mentioning before. We graduated from uni and were about to start our practice and the global financial crisis occurred. And Happened. so, yeah, so it was, I guess, a time where perhaps opportunities weren't super forthcoming. Um, and so we did a lot of self-initiated work as well. So working in art galleries and testing um, and playing, I guess, and having having a bit of fun with how we worked. And it was quite, like it wasn't particularly serious at the time. Yeah, it was all fairly small things. We built everything ourselves, but I guess we were testing ideas and trying to, I guess, yeah, maybe practice in a, in a slightly less traditional manner than what a lot of architects do. And that's gold. I mean, yeah. that's you forming yeah. your creative processes yeah, absolutely. And that time, that fr that time of freedom, yeah, is incredibly valuable for people. I think. I think that's where you form yourself in a way into what you're doing. It. Yeah. I bet it was fun just having fun with you. Yeah, it was. Colleagues, a, it was know? a lot of fun. It mm. was a lot of work as well because we built everything. We realised then we weren't builders, <laughs> 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 but. I guess it also allowed us to understand how things were kind of put together in that very direct uh, manner. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun and, yeah, we look back at that time with a lot of fondness. Yeah. yeah. I do think that, you know, that repetition of making things as well, I had a similar experience where I did the Collins Street windows with a team every Monday for six years. So, you know, you'd have, wake up on the Monday morning, go and put the window in, Tuesday you'd start on a new one, you'd brainstorm, you yeah. know, you'd have fun, then you'd the Wednesday you'd start drawing and making things, you have to make it Thursday, Friday you'd style the clothes, you know, Monday you'd put it in again. So this it was a constant sort of, kind of process, yeah, yeah, evolution, yeah. Yeah, so ideas generation just again and again and again and I think that sort of repetition at that level at when you're starting out is so valuable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So yeah. we were lucky enough to know a lot of people in the in the art world as well. And so people who had small galleries. And so we were able to kind of be part of a range of different exhibitions 
and it was quite rapid or not, not repetitious in the outcome, but there was a lot prolific. prolific so got yeah, to and do stuff. yeah, we got to experiment on a lot of different projects that yeah weren't traditional projects where it was like a client um, architect relationship. It was we were testing ideas in in spaces um, mm. that people could experience. Amazing. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about creative process in a second, but for everyone who's listening. Can you describe, if I can call Sibling a brand, describe what the core of Sibling is in terms of your work? Yeah, so I guess, so we, I think I mentioned before that we started as eight in a collective. It's now evolved into four of us sort of still being within the practice and there's been sort of no bad blood between anyone. It's all just evolved into different life happens (laughs) for different reasons. And so, yeah, four of us are still um, within the practice. But I think the, I guess the the values of of the business really are about having fun and being playful with space and architecture, being, I guess, socially responsible. I guess the social aspect of how architecture manifests and particularly in the public realm is Mm. super important to how we operate and how can you blur the boundaries between, I guess, this private and um, public spaces. Yeah, and we're, I guess we're a team of now, I think, 18 in the the studio, but I think as well, everyone shares the same values, all the staff. So, and we've got a very non-hierarchical um, structure. Everyone's opinion in the um, office is just as important as everyone else's. So, and that's been a, I think, something as well as us having started as eight people, always having a lot of opinions and a lot of crossover of ideas has been important to our creative process and not, not being afraid to um, disagree as well. Because your structure is so flat, mm-hmm. I'm really interested as you describe your creative process, how leadership sits with that level of collaboration, how you see yourselves as a leader, yeah. you know, the roles might be different. Um, I'd love to hear about your creative process. Yeah. And I mean, we don't have a particular set creative process. I think every project um, is unique and we look at social, political, cultural aspects of what's happening at the time or for a particular project and we begin to pick apart elements or find aspects of a of a project that we can begin to amplify or influence and start to think of ideas in that way. And I think with many of the people in the office, they, I guess, have become used to that process and understand the process of how, how we work. But yeah, there's certainly an element of having to guide as well. So the leadership is a process, I think, like any creative process, there's ebbs and flows. And yeah, I think being able to discuss ideas openly and critically. And I think all the staff really enjoy that as well, that they are as much a part of that design process as we are. Mm. So, yeah, we have we have a process where we will put, and I think through COVID we now have these sort of digital pin-up boards where we can everyone can kind of go in and collaboratively comment and make, I guess, markups and, and iterative design comes, I guess, through this collaborative process. Mm. Um, yeah. That sounds amazing, yeah. digital one, rather yeah. than pinning it up. Well, yeah, I mean, it sort of came from the necessity of having to do it during the, the COVID period and I think that sort of just stuck around where it's become a, a nice tool for us all to kind of different ideas. You can put images. It's, yeah, I mean, it's like a, a Miro mm. Beautiful. Yeah, so. yeah. I do think that I was thinking about overnight, you know, um, the younger people in your team 
one of the things I've done consistently is even if someone's fairly new, I've included them in all of the high-level conversations. Well, when I say high-level, it's like, you know, if there's a brief with a client, we always bring the new people to those things. Yeah, And when I think about people who've worked, you know, very closely with me, they're in all of the meetings. Mm. So I think, A, it's inspiring for people. They know everything. Yeah. It's completely efficient. Yes. And you're not spending time when you get back. Having to repeat everything. Having to repeat everything. So the time that they come to the meeting, it's inspiring for them and they get all the information. Yeah. So it's really efficient. I'm really dedicated to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I over think... time, that part of that process, taking team people with you to meetings, actually is like a form of training by osmosis. Oh, yeah, it, it sort of, I think it's essential. Like how else can someone that a young architectural designer kind of learn unless they are exposed to all of that discussion and, you know, and then the real world realities of a project are actually just as important as the creative elements, you know, where we talk budgets and structure just as much as we talk all of the the creative stuff. And I think you've got to be understanding that as a holistic um, approach because you can't just have unabashed creativity that doesn't sit within the real world. So I think it's like learning how those processes work from an early age is super important. Super important. Yeah, to form young young minds. Was there anyone when you were forming that taught you a lot of that stuff or did you just? Yeah, I think so we... When we all finished uni, we all left and went and worked for different practices. I myself worked for Aspect Studios in Sydney, so landscape architecture, and then for Grimshaw Architects. Some of my co-directors worked um, at McBride Charles Ryan, which is just around the corner here. And, yeah, I think we all learnt through those practices. We all had our own sort of mentors within mm. within the practice who taught us and we've those relationships last to this day and, you know, everyone's moved to different places and gone their own ways but those relationships have been, yeah, long-lasting. So valuable. And so valuable, yeah. yeah. It was interesting talking to Marcel Oka, her photographer, um, Earl Carter was his mentor yeah. for a very long time, you know, spent time in the studio and, you know, he he just says that's where you learn it all yeah. in a way. You no, know, absolutely. You're building on it, which is incredibly valuable. Yeah, and we tried to give back as being part of mentoring programs through the Institute and other things like that as well. So, yeah, understanding how important that is for, for young um, students within the within the profession as <laughs> exactly. well. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your creative process for the Dulux Award Project, which is the Darabin Intercultural Centre. Um, tell us about how that project started and what happened. Yeah, so we we won that project in late 2020 or mid-2020 via public tender. We'd worked um, with Darabin, City of Darabin previously, but uh, managed to win this one as well, which was great. So it all started during COVID, but it was very built into the brief from an early stage via council that the project would be steered by and guided by a community reference group. So there were eight culturally and linguistically diverse community members involved as part of a consultation. Yeah, so through this um, process of the uh, community reference group, we created a set of guiding principles for the project. And I think an early move that we made fairly early on in the design process was making the space uh, culturally agnostic. And it was really about the 
spaces between cultures, so not a multicultural centre, the space for cultures to interconnect that was really important to the design process. And it was interesting, we also consulted with the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung, the, the centre's in an old heritage building on the corner of High and Gower Street in Preston, not far from the, the Preston Markets, which is another important, place. Yeah, <laughs> important intercultural space in the community. Um, but it was interesting because it's this old uh, 1890s um, building from the outside. When the Wurundjeri came and we consulted with them, they came into the building and they said, this actually feels quite culturally unsafe as a building. So we also made a deliberate reference or a, a deliberate act to make the interior spaces and the exterior spaces feel quite juxtaposed from one another. And so we, t- we took this move of completely opening up the floor plan. It was very compartmentalised prior to that and that was quite a big move. And then we created a, a tapestry of materiality across the floor which included hardwood timbers, uh, cork, vinyl and then some historical tiles that were left on the floor. Um, were also integrated into it. And then we made a a deliberate act um, to really remove all of the historical ornamentation, so the cornice work, and then reveal the brickwork. So revealing the country that this building was made of um, was also another key idea that we um, put into the, the project. So the design outcome is really this tapestry of materiality. So a coming together of all of these quite different materials, which I guess, again, is this uh, metaphor for the for the community that we're designing for, and then using colour as a way to really start to create identity through all of these spaces as well. There's a, a range of different activities that occur in the centre. It might be how to, learning how to do your tax, a dance class, cooking classes, social events that community members might put on as well. And some are run by the council and some can just be uh, booked by the community as well. But we wanted to make each space have its own identity and its own character and I think colour was a great way for us to do that and certainly, yeah, we were uh, very thankful to be and honoured to have been awarded the the Grand Prix at the Dulux um, Colour Award for that. Um, and, yeah, there was some pretty bold use of colour, I think, mm. in the in the way that we uh, designed it and we weren't afraid to sort of go, <laughs> go there with go, it. Yeah, around. yeah, we splashed it around. But also, too, you used it in a meaningful way. Yeah. I think yeah, know, it wasn't tokenistic in the way. No, was it? Yeah. no. As you said, it was an early move. Yeah, you know yeah. the way that you used in different areas. So, talk to me about how you decided what the colours were. Like, yeah. do you have like studio favourites? Like, we've got a way of when we go around our palettes, there are things that we always do just repeatedly. Like, we can't help ourselves. Yeah. How do you approach colour? Yeah, I think we always again like often. I think it's a reference to nature when we're looking at the colour palettes and certainly in what a great context. In the in this colour palette, it was looking at the kind of the Australian landscape and I guess some of the the flowers and florals that you see. And so this really orange and gold uh, colourway began to emerge, which yeah, I mean it, it it is very Australian in the and prevalent in the Australian landscape, but also isn't kind of that really identifiable kind of green and gold sort of wattle yeah, thing. No. So it was kind of a, a deliberate move, <laughs> no, deliberate no. move Success. sort of away from that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think in terms of colours, we probably do have a few go-tos. We seem to like orange. <laughs> um, but I think we're, again, open and every project is unique and we'll test colour palettes that it, we feel that are appropriate to the project and the context that they're in. Yeah. Mm. I think, yeah. 
I think colour is just one of the joys really of working in space and it's it gives so much visual and emotive feeling to yeah, people absolutely. as they arrive. Yeah. Do you think that this each of the spaces with being the different colours, did that help to identify any of the crossovers or how do you actually take what the meaning and what you want to get across into the spaces? How do you make that transition? I guess in this um, in this instance we kind of looked at it as, a again, this tapestry. So it was really about breaking the colours up and sort of melding it together and then breaking them apart and being able to then, I guess, overlay that or drape it through the spaces was the way mm. that we began to think about it. And certainly we looked at certain colour theory and made sure that we were putting sort of colours where it needed to be calm, it was feeling a bit calmer and where maybe a bit more energy could be enacted in the spaces, then those sorts of colours were applied there. So, yeah, it wasn't sort of a really strict idea of how colour was placed, but yeah, it was about, I guess, fragmenting it through the space with all the different materials as well. It looked, I mean, it looks incredible. Yeah, Everyone oh, thank can you. see it online. It, oh, looks, thank you. it looks so <laughs> fabulous. And the the gold and the yellow and the ochres in there, it's really interesting. Do you think there's a colour zeitgeist? There probably is. Well, I mean, there's always the colour of the year and all mm, those sorts of mm, things. And mm. yeah, colours do come in fashion and I remember when the baby, that really sort of baby pink was yeah, all the rage. The blush. And, yeah, the blush the pink. Yeah. So there's definitely trends that happen with colour. We tend to try to not follow that and try to just sort of stick to our own lane and yeah, see see what we can achieve with colour. But there, I think there are um, definitely trends and I, there's probably, I think in architecture and interiors, like at the moment, there's a a beige trend mm, kind of mm, going on. Mm, and so, de- it's definitely yeah, kind yeah. of 70s vibes. Yeah, and so I think, you know, we we always like what colour can bring to a project and I think through our practice we've often been working on fairly limited budgets and we understand that colour is a way for us to give design impact um, absolutely. without too much fuss. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Tell us about the feedback you've had from the community? From the community, yeah. Yeah, and the council and how's it all going out there? Yeah, no, it, the feedback's been really, really positive. So we've been out back out there a few times. I was there on a Sunday a month or so ago and there was a community group there. One of the members of the community reference group was there actually and he pulled me aside and he just said, thank you so much for kind of providing this space. It's so important for the community. He said there's still a lot of racism within the community and there's still a lot of you know, the pressures of living at the moment with cost of living and those, I guess, economic pressures in the community that having these spaces where the community can come together, gather and connect is just so important to them. Mm. So that was really beautiful yeah, um, that, to hear. So, that's such yeah. great feedback, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So to hear that from one of the people that we was part of the design process was very uh, humbling. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about the different types of projects you take on before yep. we were just chatting earlier and we were talking about NGV and you talked about the incredible cafe that you created. Oh, yes. Um, in 2021, I think it was yes. maybe. Yeah. Yes. Or 2020. That's times a blur. Yes. I, it was one of the, I think it might have been yeah. 21. I can't remember. Yeah. Yes. Describe some of the, your favourite projects or your hallmark projects. Like what were the projects where you got to and like that was like a pushed you further into the space that you wanted to be in or that 
was a highlight. Talk to me about some of your favourite projects. Yeah, I guess we've got a um, we we've we've always liked this idea of being architects in the public realm, um, and so I think we made a deliberate move from an early an early point to try and work on projects in the public realm. I think a lot of architects cut their feet, uh, teeth in um, residential projects and then that slowly progresses into multi-res and then public projects. We were very fortunate that we were working in this gallery context and then we did exhibition designs at RMIT Design Hub. So an exhibition design still is a is an element of the practice that we still work on and I think a lot of the the staff and young people who want to work for us are certainly interested in in that part of the practice and so the cafe at NGV with mm. Adam Nathaniel Furlaman is certainly a um a spectacular. A, yeah, that was a, mm. a fantastic project and I think from an early early point we also were working on hospitality and retail projects and that really helped kickstart our career. We we probably don't do so much of that anymore, but um, I think the Dust Project, which I think we, I, think, I can't, if it was it 2015, we won the interior design, yeah. like the main award for that. So that, that was, was a real, amazing. Yeah. So that was a, an amazing project that helped really, I think, kickstart where we were. And so that was very formative in the way that we thought and, and were thinking. And then we were teaching at the time and through that got some opportunities through Monash Uni and then sort of started to get into the education space and have been... I think now our main body of work is with um, education and cultural spaces. So we're working on yeah, several schools, a few that we've just finished, the Box Hill North Primary School, Aries Inlet uh, Primary School, the Wangaratta District Specialist School. So working with kids with disabilities and that was an interesting project where we really looked at sensory architecture and how all of the senses could be activated through through the architecture, so touch, olfactory, yeah, just thinking about all all the different senses and how that can either heighten your experience or calm you down mm. as well. So really looking at the the polars of sensory design. Yeah, and obviously the Darabin Intercultural Centre was a fantastic, fantastic project that I think has been uh, pretty formative in the way that we operate and I think the the consultation process with that I think has just been amazing and, and uh, has opened us up to to some of the possibilities of what those kind of co-design processes look like as well. I'm interested in the word consultation. I feel like there's a pocket of Australia that doesn't like consultation. I feel like they might be scared of it. Don't you? Yeah, I, I mean, like, yeah, yep, yeah, definitely. I like I like the way that you're thinking in terms of looking at education maybe differently, yeah. you know, a different perspective in terms of, okay, what are the kids who are there at that school? What do they need? Yeah, absolutely. You know? and, and I think if you if you go down to that level of end use, yeah, often well, I find that can lead you in the right place. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, architecture and, you know, school buildings or cultural buildings, they're they're really there for the end users at the end of the day. And so the people who are going to be in these spaces in a continual manner, if you can't, if you don't understand what their needs are, then there's sort of no way that you can understand what you're designing for. I mean, you can design a, a classroom based on metrics, but understanding what the ki- who the kids are or who the creatives are that you're making spaces for, I think for us we find that super interesting because it gives you 
all of the seeds and information that you need in able to put the project together. Mm, amazing. When I was talking to Harrison Smart about oh, yeah. some of the questions that might interest you, one of the ones he came back with was about how important it is to work in regional areas. Tell us about some of that. Yeah, we've been very fortunate and I think successful in some of our regional projects. So we've got a couple of examples. We we were successful in a project in Bega in southern New South Wales. It was the old Bega Hospital. It was an old heritage building that had been burnt down. It was this old beautiful ruin um, in the landscape, but a community group had come together and were keen to kind of bring it back to being a community asset. And so working with that community and going, I guess, travelling to Bega and speaking to people, different community members, we then got sort of linked into um, the Bega Valley Regional Gallery, which is also now the South East Contemporary Arts, I believe. Yes. And that's a project that's just under construction now. So it's the new art gallery in Bega. So it was it had gone from sort of a quite a regional gallery to now being, I guess, wanting to be a bit of a beacon within the, the region and, and to start to attract kind of bigger cultural events, say like the Archibald and other Great. other elements. So yeah, and then I guess these relationships that you form in communities just mean that you're, I guess, you become known in the community. And I think, you know, me being from regional um, Victoria, mm, I've got a, a soft got spot. I've got, a, I've got you've a got soft that spot headset for, the, for the regional projects. So, yeah. yeah, we work on a lot of different um, regional projects from in Victoria, in, yeah, Aries Inlet, Wangaratta, Rushworth, Port Ferry. So, yeah, a lot of different places. It's, it's fantastic and I do th- I do feel sometimes that, you know, when you're in the city creating, there's a whole other opportunity out there. Yeah, definitely. And particularly, as you say, if you're, you love the land yeah. and the country, there's yeah. so much out there, which yeah. is amazing. And there's a bit of extra travel involved, but yeah. that's all right. I'm well, used to long drives. <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah. I think yeah. That's, that's part of it, isn't yeah, exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. So the night that you won the Dulux Award, you weren't actually there. Where were you? No, I was actually on a, a train between Madrid and Barcelona. How so? so? <laughs> I was on a an architecture tour, which was a precursor um, to the Venice Biennale. Um, so very fortunate to have been invited on the tour, um, which explored amazing projects through Madrid and Barcelona, um, visiting amazing projects by world-renowned architects and many, many inspiring projects. Probably my favourite one was the La Coles Pavilion in Olot in Spain. Okay. So just out of um, Barcelona and it was by RCR Architects who were one of the Pritzker Prize winning uh, architects. And it was this amazing pavilion that was made of PVC strips. And so it sort of doesn't sound like much, but it was the most ethereal beautiful experience um, and we were very privileged to have had dinner in this pavilion and then it sort of took on this whole other uh, animated light effect at night where the lights would start to to completely change the environment as well. So, if, if yeah, I would encourage people to look this project up because it is quite spectacular and I'd never heard of it um, before. I think the effect of travel for a creative is so layered and so profound. The things you learn... And just, oh, definitely. I guess I always talk about my greatest joy in travel. And when you see things like the building you just described, is the level of thinking that said yes. Yeah. Talk to me about travel and what that 
does for you. Yeah, oh, I love travelling. And so <laughs> the last few years, obviously, were pretty hard with the 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 ability not to travel very much, but certainly getting the getting the boots back on, <laughs> which has been great. Yeah, I mean, I think it just opens you up to the thinking from other parts of the world and I think just seeing how different cultures and different cities do things in different ways. I think you can't sort of be fully rounded as a designer without sort of being exposed to some of those things. You really have to kind of understand what's been done before, what's been successful and yeah, and it's just super inspiring to be able to to have the to the privilege of going on that. And I think the other, I'd, I'm not sure if how many people are in sort of creative partnerships, but certainly traveling with your your partner can sometimes be. Sometimes I don't always want to look at architecture and landscape architecture. Yeah. So the opportunities like the tour I went on, where you can sort of geek out with another group of um, professionals, was was pretty cool. Yeah, just to form those relationships very quickly. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, yeah. in five or seven or ten days. Yeah, yeah, no, you you make some very lasting friendships and yeah. so, yeah, and everyone's, they're doing the same thing and so it was, um, yeah, an no, absolute privilege. It is, it's a, it's a real shot in the arm for a mid-career person, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, so, yeah. definitely uh, a highlight. Inspiration off the charts for sure. <laughs> I love it. All right, we've got some quick questions for, well, not Nothing I do is quick, but uh, we've got some shorter questions. Okay. Um, firstly, one of the ones that I haven't asked yet is how did you come up with the name for sibling? We basically had a ballot of a whole lot of different okay. names. That's a great way <laughs> yeah, to do yeah. it. So we, I think there were about What did ten... people vote? Yeah, and so yeah. then we all voted in the end and sibling was the winner. So I think there were about ten different names great. on the list and so it was a democratic um, approach process. process to naming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And what does what does sibling mean to you? Well, I think in terms that well, it obviously has a, a connotation of family and um, being together. But it also, I think, sibling relationships are also, you know, they're not afraid to say what they think. And so, our it is a family relationship. Um, mm. And so we, you know, I go on holidays with my co-directors. And so yeah. we're we're not only friends in practice, we're also friends in real life, which I think is really, well, really and first nice, and foremost friends. Yeah. So you're not afraid to mix business with pleasure. And I, think, I love that. Yeah. And it's been, you know, most people are like, oh God, you guys are crazy. But um, yeah, we, I think we've been able to do it and it's been great. Amazing. Yeah. How long have you been in business? I haven't even asked that. Yeah, so we, sibling in that sort of early form, I think started in about 2008. Um, and then in about 2012, we came together and started actually working on architecture projects. And then we properly sort of formalised as a business in 2016. But yeah, so it's almost 10 years. Amazing. Yeah. Well, it's really 18. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Overnight yeah. sensation. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. What was the one rule that you think you broke when you formed Sibling? I think breaking conventionality. I think trying to think in a way that and and practicing as this sort of larger collective, I think was quite out there at the time. And so, yeah, trying to not be that sort of conventional architecture practice. Was that easy? Did that feel fairly easy? Like you had a vibe and a, you could see something? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, working with each other was easy. I mean, it, it was also, you know, complicated hmm. um, with eight different people to corral. 
but I think it also just offered new perspectives in the way that we could um, think and operate. So, yeah. So tell me about renewal. I'm obsessed with how people keep renewing themselves over and over. We have super long careers now. So what's your personal sort of renewal process? How do you keep not burnt out? Yeah, I mean. Or do you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, I think work-life balance is super important and having time away from uh, creative practice and, yeah, for me just being out in nature is super important and being connected to the bush, the ocean and and just having that space to to think. But as a practice, I think renewal is just about every look, not sort of having a style or a, an approach that you're really hell-bent on and being able to... I guess, evolve and move with the times and think about each project individually. I think that sort of just means that you're not stuck in a sort of stylistic pattern and it's not just sort of a repeat. Everything you're doing is is new, a new approach. Because you're understanding the brief and the context and giving the project what it needs. Yeah, exactly. I guess yeah. That, yeah. that is a great way to go. Yeah. And then... The everyday then sort of fuels that yeah, newness, I guess. Exactly. Which is amazing. Yeah, like what's happening in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So what did you do on your last day off and how do you waste your time? How do I? <laughs> um, I have a house in Dalesford as well. So my last day off I was up there relaxing and, yeah, it's it backs on to the Wombat State Forest, so going for a walk. Um, through the forest was a, a beautiful way to relax, yeah. Do you or do you not separate work and play? I think we do. We we both, I think both. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm feeling it, the scales of balance yeah. coming in, Nick. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's some, sometimes it's separated and sometimes it's not. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Looking to the future, what do you think the most useful skills a creative can have? Adaptability, I think, just the ability to, and yeah, the ability to listen, I think, being able to listen and not, you know, I think as creatives, there can sometimes be a tendency to to think that your opinion is the right one. But I think sometimes stepping back and listening to others' opinions is just as powerful um, to the creative process. Amen. <laughs> beautiful. All right. Are you front of house or back of house? Probably front of house, yeah. I think probably as being one of the the leaders of the practice, my yeah position is fairly front of house, but also know how to go into the back door and work at the at the back as well. Yeah, so, yeah, fantastic. So it have to be yeah. all rounded. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's interesting. Like ninety nine percent of people we interview are back of house people. Really, like they cringe about being front of house. So I'm interested. That's a really nice sense of confidence that you have to talk about and put your work and your ideas out there, which is really, really great. Oh, thank you. Hopefully a lot of people <laughs> taking note of that. All right, most used colour palette. Doesn't exist. So I think, yeah, it's different every time. Great. Yeah. I love that. Favourite place to travel. Oh, I've got to say Europe. Yeah. <laughs> Any time of the year? Uh, probably, I, I like the in-between seasons, so spring and autumn, yeah. The transitions. The transitions, yeah. The yeah. glue. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. Do you have a favourite hotel you'd like to share with us? Not a hotel per se, but I, we, I quite like to book sort of Airbnbs that are architectural um, spaces. So, I mean, one of the, the great 
ones that I've been to was um, the Kunyani House in Tasmania by McGlashan Everest, which if you can, you can hire that one. And then also the the Boyd House out in Long, Long Forest, you can also uh, book. So there are some local uh, Australian examples that I can think of. Fantastic. Everyone's got to get on Airbnb <laughs> now. You've heard it from the source. <laughs> Most inspiring architect of all time. Uh, Obvious question, but yeah, have to ask it. Yeah, I don't know if I can pick one. I don't. I don't think there's one. So it's there's just too many to 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 think of. But uh, if I had to pick one, Louis Kahn. Yeah. And sure. what is it about <laughs> his work? Oh, just sort of the monumentality and the sort of these beautiful, I guess, structural elements, and almost, yeah, I guess. Yeah, an ephemeral nature to them that you there's a presence that is inspiring. Mm. Yeah, I love the the word of monumental and ephemeral in the yeah, same yeah, paragraph. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. pretty special. <laughs> Nick, congratulations on winning the Jillax Color Award, and thank you for your time today. It's been so great to share a coffee and eat cookies yeah. and talk. Thank you, Amanda. Cheers. Thank you, thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers.